the Gucci girl, Prada professional, coach queen, or target trendsetter. No matter how you describe her, she's the most powerful consumer in the country. Cranberry Radio proudly presents Purse Strings. Join marketing to women expert Maria Retan, chief storyteller at Styled Retail, as she chats with those in the know so that your business can grow. Now, please welcome our host of Purse Strings, Maria Retan. Good afternoon and welcome to Purse Strings. I'm Maria Retan. Thanks so much for joining me today. You can catch Purse Strings right here every Tuesday at 3 o'clock Eastern Time. Each and every week you'll learn how you and your company can corner the market on the most powerful consumer in the country. The 51% of us who control more than 80% of all the spending. The woman. Well, first up, a story by Jess Nelson and Email Marketing Daily about email marketers and how it's so hard to stand out in a crowd. Now, uh, several weeks ago, I talked about how email is still so vital to reaching people. Uh, you do read email, believe it or not. You read a lot of it. And as you know, you get a lot of it, too. And in fact, email volume has grown 61% over the past two years alone, according to Adobe Campaign and Email on Acid. Love that name. Uh, meaning that there's more and more competition for your inbox. And we know that that really bumps up around the holidays. In fact, uh, 32.4% more emails sent over the holidays, and it can be really, really overwhelming. And many of us don't unsubscribe. So uh, Email on Acid monitored more than 40,000 email campaigns over the last two years to evaluate engagement trends. And that includes looking at how long a subscriber actually views the email. Um, Email interactions were divided by deletes, skims, and reads, and the average rate time for emails over the last two years for reading it was 12.3 seconds. So that's not a lot of time to capture people's attention and actually give them some information. Uh, you do a lot of reading of email on Sundays, just so you know, but actually the any of the day of the week has a pretty high open rate. Um, what we're seeing is that a B2B email marketer may not want to send emails at night after subscribers leave the office because you will actually open it during the day during your work, even though, as I mentioned, most email volume is sent on Sundays. So something you might want to keep in mind. I've talked about this before, the importance of personalization and, in fact, that you need to be more personalized in your message and also your offer. And um, really, you know, being appropriate, um, making sure that it's something that is going to hit home with that consumer uh, when they get around to reading it. Um, so re-engagement campaigns should have a different type of messaging to limit email fatigue and duplicate emails as well. So keep that in mind this holiday. I'm sure many of you have email campaigns, and uh, this would be very timely to take a look at email on acid and that study results. Our purse profile today is a Kate Spade shopper, a woman 35 years old, mom of three, married, household income of more than 60K, working part-time, does a lot of her online shopping, uh, but prefers the retail experience, especially during the holidays, and feels the holidays should be an experience. Don't we all believe that? Uh, she's very fashion aware, reads a lot of fashion magazines, likes to be unique. She's optimistic, very happy with her standard of living, loves to seize new opportunities and take risks and do things on the spur of the moment. She likes, therefore, novelty and change, and she will switch up styles each and every season and indulge those kids with those little extras. She's shopping at Macy's, Kohl's, Nord 
Stremel Navy Pier 1 Pottery Barn in Crate and Barrel. She's driving a Volkswagen, a Toyota, and a Chrysler. She's shopping Kate Spade, of course. That's why she's the Kate Spade shopper. Calvin Klein um, and Ann Taylor. Uh, Media choices, Parenting, Cosmo, Vanity Fair, People Magazine, Good Housekeeping, and Style, Marie Claire. You can see she consumes a ton of magazines. That's a great way to intersect her. She's also watching E, H-E-T-B-T-L-C, and Lifetime, along with HBO. And she's on a lot of those same websites as well, including Disney, because remember, this is a mom of three. Well, my guest today um, is an author and a journalist. Lisa Napoli has lived for the last dozen years in Southern California, where she was inspired to write the book she's going to talk about by a public artwork installation. Uh, And she's spent the last 30 years working as a journalist, doing work with the New York Times and MSNBC and public radio show Marketplace and a variety of other outlets. She's covered everything from presidential campaigns to hacker conventions to a hostage standoff. She wrote her first book, Radio Shangri-La, about the impact of media culture on the mysterious kingdom of Bhutan. And she's here today to talk about her latest book, Ray and Joan, The Man Who Made the McDonald's Fortune and the Woman Who Gave It All Away. She's going to be going to the Miami Book Fair this November to share it with the world, and I'm so excited to have her on the show first. To stick around, Lisa Napoli joins me after the break. Her strings. We'll be right back after a word from our advertisers. Are you paying too much for your paid advertising, or have you quit altogether because it seemed like a huge waste of money? Studies show that companies waste 25% of their PPC spend on average. The web marketing experts at WMETraining.com can show you how to make your AdWords account a lean, mean converting machine. Whether you're just starting out or want to take your skills to the next level, we have a class for you. Contact the web marketing experts at WMETraining.com. Literature is taking over Miami streets. Between November 13th and the 20th, downtown Miami will transform into a full-week celebration of the literary arts. More than 500-plus authors are coming to share their new work at the 2016 Miami Book Fair. The Porch is open every evening, complete with a full schedule of live music and performances, a farmer's market and cafe, food trucks, craft beer, and more. For more information on the 33rd Miami Book Fair, November 13th to the 20th at Miami-Dade College's Wolfson Campus in downtown Miami, call 305-237-3258 or visit MiamiBookFair.com. Follow Miami Book Fair on Facebook. Add some Cranberry Radio podcast to your playlist as part of a better profit margin. Cranberry Radio. It's, it's good for you. Really. Her Strings is back with the inside track on today's women. Once again, here's Maria Retan. My guest today is Lisa Napoli. She has lived for more than a dozen years in Southern California, where she was inspired to write this book about Ray and Joan Crock by a public artwork with a mysterious provenance. She's been a journalist for the last three decades. You may have seen her work in the New York Times, MSNBC, and of course, the public radio show Marketplace. So she is a professional, as we like to say in the business. She's covered a myriad of topics, a lot of them serious stuff, like presidential campaigns 
campaigns, hacker conventions, and a hostage standoff. She is also an author with her first book being called Radio Shangri-La, and it's about the impact of media culture on the mysterious kingdom of Bhutan. Uh, she's a volunteer board chair of the Bhutan Media Society, and she is going to be at the Miami Book Fair later this month talking about her latest book called Ray and Joan, The Man Who Made the McDonald's Fortune and The Woman Who Gave It Away. I'm thrilled to have Lisa on the show today. Welcome. Welcome to you. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, I'm excited to have you. So I have to say, you've covered a lot of really serious stuff in your career. Why tackle Ray Kroc, the man who, of course, amassed a huge fortune as the chairman of McDonald's, and specifically why focus on his third wife, Joan? You know, what was it in the journalist in you that said, I think this is going to be a great story? And something I'm going to spend five years investigating. I never would have imagined <laughs> it. Um, I I am not a McDonald's eater. Uh, it's fine if somebody else wants to, but I'm not. I'm a pretty healthy eater, so it wasn't because of an interest in McDonald's in that sense. But I am fascinated by uh, mid twenty the mid twentieth century and just popular culture in general. And what happened for me is that I was working here in Southern California, and I went to cover this peace sculpture that was about to be knocked down because it was falling down, and I asked who had built it in the first place, and one of the activists fighting to preserve it said that it was Joan Kroc. And a lot of people in public radio know about Joan Kroc because she gave mm-hmm. a $250 million gift, a landmark gift, when she died in 2003. It was the biggest gift ever made to public radio. And so her name is said on public radio every single day. So it was impossible for me as a public radio reporter not to be curious, to not be curious about the fact that this woman whose name is all over public radio had something to do with this 26-foot sculpture a 26-feet-tall sculpture of a nuclear mushroom cloud. It just seems very odd. So I went to see if I could find a biography of her, and I couldn't. So I got sucked into the story and just wanted to find out more. And every time I asked a question and someone was mysterious or cagey or didn't answer at all, I just got more interested. And five years later, I now have a book about it. Yes, you do. You have a very great book about it. And it's not the only thing out there about the Crocs. It's interesting. I I don't know why the sudden fas- sudden fascination with Ray and Joan. Clearly, your fascination has been a five-year journey. But there is going to be a movie coming out this fall called The Founder. It stars Michael Keaton, which highlights Ray's story. What are you thinking about that? Is that good timing for you and your book, you think? Oh, well, I think that that's exactly why we're publishing the book now, <laughs> to seize the momentum and interest. But it is interesting. I've heard around town here in Los Angeles that the people behind this movie were trying to get it made for quite some time. And I believe that there is this fascination, you know, now that we're, gosh, almost in 2017, I think there is this strange fascination with mid-20th century, post-war Americana. I mean, of course, there always has been. But I think as some of us get older... Um, we're just more reflective on the time right before we came along. And I can't, I don't know why the movie was germinated at the same time as my book, but I, apparently we've, you know, both the 
writer of the movie and myself were thinking about these subjects uh, at the same time. And also anybody who's curious to know the story, the roots of McDonald's, doesn't have to dig very far to find that it really wasn't Ray Kroc who started McDonald's. It started not far from here in downtown Los Angeles, about 90 minutes away. Uh, What's interesting about that is McDonald's has worked very hard to protect its image and pump out its message and over the years. I mean, that's not a new thing. That's that's dates back to the beginning of the company. So I think that, again, people who are curious about something, when they start to ask questions and they find that they can't find out more information, more answers, they want to know more. And I'm sure that the screenwriter felt the same way. The screen The screenplay focuses on the first five years of McDonald's and how Ray Kroc made a deal with the McDonald brothers to franchise their really successful system. My book looks at that, but it also looks more at the personal relationship between Ray and Joan. So hopefully people who are interested in one will look at the other, even though we have nothing to do with each other. Right. No, I I think that's a really good point. And I think there is a fascination with that relationship. It's interesting um, that she went from being a piano player right here in nearby St. Paul. This radio show, of Mm -hmm. course, is based in Minneapolis. Ray walks in, sees her, according to your book, and in instant attraction. She's married. He's married. I think he goes Mm -hmm. on, right, to propose to her. She declines. A number of years later, that comes back around, and she eventually says yes and becomes his third wife. Talk a little bit about his pursuit of Joan and why, to the outside world, they seem to be a perfect couple, even though he actually was about, what, 25 years older than she was. Yeah, 26 years older and very similar in terms of their fiery passionate personality. So I can see how I've tried to imagine that moment many times when he walked into this restaurant in in St. Paul and saw her, uh, you know, beyond the fact that she was a beautiful woman and she was playing the piano and he was a piano player. I think that, you know, they they just had this instant, instant attraction. But, you know, they had a, an interesting and tempestuous relationship that was tied in part to McDonald's because when they first met, not only were they married to other people, but Ray was really struggling. McDonald's as a corporation was not doing well. The the individual McDonald's that had kicked it off in San Bernardino, California, was doing great. But franchising, if anybody out there has ever attempted to do it or looked at it, is not an easy thing, especially in those days. And McDonald's did not, by the way, invent franchising, which many people think it did. Um, in those days, there were models and systems that were being developed that, you know, seemed probably quaint by today's highly mechanized, mass-produced standards. And so Ray was really stressed out as he was trying to preserve, ironically, the local quality of the food. He didn't want the individual franchisees Mm -hmm. to buy the food from a mass-produced organization like him. He wanted them to source it locally and follow the recipes and the techniques used by the McDonald brothers. And that was not a winning financial formula. And so when when Ray and Joan met, there was the stress for Joan of having a young family and a husband who had ultimately become a franchisee. For Ray, there was this stress, this enormous stress that, you know, he's in drowning, drowning in debt, both personally and for the corporation, which he kept expanding despite the fact that there was no money coming in. And so those things together, I think, made their life difficult. And then you add to that that Ray was a drinker 
and he mm-hmm. was a very tempestuous person when you added b- before you added alcohol but once you added alcohol things got very very fiery so i think all those things came together and to convince joan not to marry him in the very beginning and when he proposed again in the late 60s she said yes without hesitation and off they went. By then, he divorced his first wife and married his second wife. Um, so you can see that there's a lot of drama here, which is what made it such an interesting story to report. All these <laughs> exactly, and a great book to read because we get all the insider details of that. Um, yeah, yes. Yes, absolutely. Well, and you, it's, it's also details that, to your point, we don't hear about, right? Because those issues that Ray had everyone tried to keep a lid on it. Joan didn't talk about it, of course. You know, the alcoholism, he had quite the controlling personality, it sounds like, quite a a fluid, uh, spiky anger issue. And I would imagine that Joan knew that going into it. So what was her life like once she was married? Did she kind of just suck it up and deal with his personality or was she able to quiet some of those demons? This is what was so compelling to me about Joan and why every time I hit a a wall in my research, I kept going because I found her to be such a compelling person. She was so interested in making things work and helping other people, and not in a Pollyanna sort of way. She was not a Pollyanna in any way. But what she did was, instead of divorcing Ray, she stayed with him, and she decided to start an alcoholism education group. Now, that's one thing if you did it today, when people talk about addiction very openly. But when she did this, it was the 1970s. And people just did not talk about their private details in any way, the way we do today in the age of reality TV. Um, but they, they certainly didn't then. And, and alcoholism was something that people thought was an issue that gutter drunks, you know, bums in the street, people would say, drink, not people in polite society who are running corporations. And Joan knew that that wasn't true. And she, because she had access to raise then, what then was a huge fortune, um, decided that she would take that money and do something helpful with it. And she convened all of these people who were in the early movement of alcoholism, addiction, recovery, education, uh, to come together at the ranch that Ray had bought in Central Coast, California, to talk about what they they could do as a group. These were individuals who had seen the problem, maybe had experienced the problem and overcome it themselves. And Joan just wanted to sort of meet the minds and, and see what the folks thought they could do together or what they could do even individually. And she, what's interesting about that is that she wasn't educated as a social worker. She certainly wasn't educated as an addiction counselor because there wasn't really that kind of job in in the way it exists today. She just had gone to Al-Anon herself and was looking for a way to, to cope. And that, I think, was the pivot point for her life, that she saw she could have been a trophy wife and gone for massages and spa treatments and, you know, shopped her heart out. But and, and she did those things to an extent. But instead, she decided instead of being, she said she was bored by the boards, she would be involved with with helping. And, and this was a very, very bold way to help at a time when 
the McDonald's people certainly didn't want the wife of the chairman, the third wife, which was scandalous enough at that time, to come out and say that the the chairman of this company, which was as popular then as Apple would be today, um, that he had a problem. So Mm -hmm. I think Mm -hmm. that that's what was so compelling to me about their marriage. You know, everybody makes compromises in marriage, of course, in any relationship, and everybody is constantly grappling with other people's personal issues and how to how to fit your life around theirs. But this was such an extreme, an extreme example that, and, and, and gave a really interesting glimpse into not just the beginning of the addiction recovery movement in earnest, but also into the 1970s. Mm-hmm. And also into Joan and what would ultimately become her legacy um, as well. This was really her, yes. what, first foray into doing good, if you will. It came from a very personal place, of course, but at the same time, it was helping legions of other people uh, grapple with the right. disease that wasn't, as you mentioned, talked about at all. Right. Yeah, so we're going to talk about that legacy when we come back, Lisa. We're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to talk about uh, Joan and her art of giving back, if you will, and she did it in a big, big way. So everyone stick around. More from Lisa Napoli when we return after the break. Her Strings. We'll be right back after a word from our advertisers. Is your website hacked? Is your website displaying error messages or loading slowly? Even if there are no signs of malicious activity, your site may still be compromised. Websites, like cars, require regular maintenance to perform at their best and not leave you stranded. At Fjord, our website maintenance experts can help you assess which one of our maintenance plans will best support your needs. Visit FjordDigital.com or call 612-877-3840 and get the support and protection your website and business deserve. That's F-J-O-R-G-E Digital.com. Looking for a white-label SEO and social platform for your clients? Think eBrands. Free and unlimited SEO audit reports. eBrands. Premium Facebook apps and welcome page creators. eBrands. Twitter management app, analytics, and mobile site generators. eBrands. Let eBrands manage your search and social media campaigns and give you and your clients access to their white label dashboard, which have great reports that will wow your clients and deliver great ROI and results. Try eBrands for 30 days. Go to eBrandsWithAZ.com or call 1-866-625-5717. That's eBrandsWithAZ for eBrands. More refreshing talk radio on air and on demand 24-7. Only on Cranberry Radio. Her Strings is back with the inside track on today's women. Once again, here's Maria Retan. Welcome back. I've been chatting with journalist and author Lisa Napoli. Lisa's first book was Radio Shangri-La. Her second is called Ray and Joan, The Man Who Made the McDonald's Fortune and the Woman Who Gave It Away. A fascinating look at the at the very private lives of Ray and Joan Kroc. Of course, Ray being the, the guy that took mass, uh, McDonald's far and wide as a franchising program. 
And of course, Joan being his third wife. And right before the break, we were talking about how Ray had some secrets, and one of which was that he was an alcoholic. And at that time in the 70s, one didn't talk about an alcoholic, especially if you're a billionaire. And yet, uh, Joan took a bold move and went out and established, brought the brightest minds around this whole disease and really started helping people talk about it and get their heads around it. Again, a very, very bold move. But she was a bold woman, it sounds like, Lisa. And yeah. I'm, I'm curious, you know, it seems like a lot of her giving came after Ray died in 1984. Is that the case? I mean, do you feel like she felt free to do a little bit more of that? Or did she? Yes. Did we really see started seeing that when he was still alive? Well, I think that what happened is that before he passed away in 1984, you know, his fortune was not controlled by his sort of inside baseball cabal, well, baseball too, he did buy a baseball team, but his inner circle of people, his image and everything he did really was controlled by this this very tight-knit group of men who had been with him since virtually the very beginning of the corporation. And so once Joan died, she not only had access to his fortune, which he left in almost its entirety to her, but she had access uh, to his foundation. Um, which got transferred over to a foundation with her name, which she ultimately dissolved because giving money through a foundation can be arduous and you have to follow all sorts of rules, and she found that to be a bit of a pain, or a big pain, actually. So she, I think, 84 was such an important year for her because Ray had been ill for quite some time. He, she was only 55 when he died. Uh, he was in his early 80s, and they had had 12 years together as a married couple. And I'm sorry, 15 years as a married couple. And she basically really just couldn't see herself holding this money and just living lavishly. She did live lavishly. She bought a new plane the year that Ray died. She upgraded the private plane that they had. She started building a beautiful, spectacular mansion for herself. But at the same time, she committed her career, if you will, her, her life to giving money away. And she did it in an inventive way, the way she had done with this organization called Operation Cork. She'd started in the 70s about alcoholism. She was just caught the bug. She just didn't want to uh, sit back. She wanted to be engaged. And I think she also felt a moral obligation, especially since she had been a working person herself. She'd come up poor, very poor in St. Paul. And she, you know, was intoxicated, not to, you know, make a bad pun, but she was intoxicated by the power that she had and that she'd experienced with her alcoholism education charity that she could um, do something. You know, with, with Operation Cork, she had made a number of movies that she got placed on television stations around the country. They aired nationally, and she also published books, and she she loved using media to get messages out about things that were important to her. And with Ray gone, she was able to do it more freely, because now the money was hers. The stock in McDonald's was hers. Uh, the, the advisors who Ray had depended on all these years 
were no longer, they, they, they had no right to say anything. It's like giving your 18-year-old the keys to the car and letting him go off. <laughs> she, she had the power, so she took it, and she kept doing what she'd done in the 70s, which was assemble people around her who she trusted and who knew what they were talking about. She became a big activist in the peace movement almost as soon as Ray died, which would have made Ray recoil in horror because he was a very conservative person. And she was very liberal, and her liberalism really came out as time as time went on. It's the further away from Ray's death it became, the more of her own person she became. And it's, it's actually really exciting to watch um, her evolve into... The, the philanthropist, the world-class mm-hmm. philanthropist and under-recognized philanthropist because many of her gifts were anonymous um, and, and, and very strange. You know, she'd see something on television and just send someone or sometimes send herself on her plane to go write a check and, and help save the day. And that, that's not a typical reaction of most enormously wealthy people. Mm-hmm. So I think that, that part of it really compelled me too that she she stuck out this difficult marriage the last few years of the marriage she says were the best because you know I think Ray had stopped drinking he couldn't drink anymore he was old and ill and they actually enjoyed each other's company um they always loved music together and once once he was gone she was able to flourish Mm-hmm. And she, you know, she had a big heart, as you say, and she did a lot of good with her really big checks. And that that money was transformational for those causes, weren't they, Lisa? I mean, you talked about the $250 million gift to American Public Radio or, you know, National that... Public Radio, National yeah. Public mm-hmm. Radio, very, very large gifts. Can you talk a little bit about how we still see that money at work today? Yeah, well, many people may live in communities. Uh, there are over, there are close to 30 of them around the country where Joan had built, Joan gave a $2 billion gift to the Salvation Army when she died, and it was earmarked to build recreation centers in poor communities. And over the last 13 years since she's died, there have been a number of them have have been erected all over the country, um, and they're in every community where they're built. They're spectacular facilities, and the neighborhoods around them transform, too. So she builds these world-class facilities. One was a prototype in San Diego where she and Ray last lived before she died, and uh, that gift is, is enormous and, and not talked about as much as you would think, given that there are... I think it's 26 right now centers. Um, There's several that were in construction. Um, But other gifts that she gave that were smaller were transformative, too. Like, for instance, when she died, she left half a million dollars to a group, a couple of people, I think it was an actual couple, in San Diego who did the laundry for AIDS patients. Mm -hmm. Um, They they just, that was their personal cause. They started taking in laundry from people who were suffering and dying and doing it for them. And Joan had heard that they had needed new laundry machines. I guess they outfitted their garage with 
washers and dryers so that they could accommodate the loads of laundry that they were doing. And Joan knew that they needed upgrading, so she left them money. So she was <laughs> she was a very interesting person that way with her flood relief. You know, she saw people suffering from floods, the floods in uh, Grand Forks, North Dakota, back in the late 90s. And instead of doing what most of us do, which is, oh, my goodness, that's horrible. Can you imagine losing your house? And maybe you send in $25 to the Red Cross if you are feeling particularly tugged at the heartstrings by it. Uh, Joan sent in one of her friends on her plane to give the mayor, who, of course, was beleaguered as you can imagine, mm-hmm. having to deal with her community underwater, and sent in a $15 million check and insisted that the gift be anonymous and that every person who needed the money get it as soon as possible, as opposed mm-hmm. to it being mired in bureaucracy. So time and again, while she was alive, she gave gifts like that, that immediately transformed people's lives. Um, and also, I think that kind of spirit is infectious. You hear that sort of thing. And it makes you want to do it, too. And, of course, mm-hmm. most of us don't have anywhere near that kind of money. <laughs> but we can do something for somebody else. And, mm-hmm. and seeing that somebody who's so rich, and, you know, rich people get a bad rap in our society because many of them are selfish and, you know, plug the rules to their advantage and all of that. But, but Joan was uh, really felt like she was the caretaker of this money and that it was her job to make sure it was put to good Good use, and even though not all of her decisions necessarily were the wisest ones in terms of finances, some people say she should have kept her foundation alive. That she should have just kept this organization. You know, most people around, even if they don't know what the Ford Foundation does, knows that there is a Ford Foundation, mm-hmm. uh, and it's been around you know, years. What is it, sixty, seventy years since Henry Ford passed away? But this foundation which actually I believe was started by his heirs, is still operational and helping. And if Joan had done that, her name would have lived on for years to come. But she didn't want that. She wanted it out there and done and, and in the hands of people who she felt would would build the hospice and build the um, you know the opera and all the things that she she financed. Mm-hmm. So really, her legacy was in the actual money getting used for good, as opposed to making sure her name was attached to it. Right. <laughs> Excellent point. Exactly. Exactly. Which is, I guess, at the end, right in the spirit of her. Exactly. Yep. So how yeah. well, how does history remember Joan, and do you think she would be pleased? Well, you know, I struggled with writing this book because at first her family said absolutely not. She would never have wanted a book written about her. Go away. So, of course, you know, I'd like to think I'm a pretty nice and kind person, and I'd sit awake at night thinking, oh, my goodness, I feel I don't want to dishonor this woman. I, but my point is to honor her, and my point is to celebrate what she did. You know, McDonald's gets a bad rap, deservedly, for its nutritional qualities. It used to get more of a bad rap for its environmental impact. It probably should get more of that now today. It is a, it is a tough company. But on the other hand, this woman took that money from that company that was earned at that company and did incredible things with it, almost like a Robin Hood. And I wanted, I wanted to help establish the legacy for her, uh, not to be grandiose, but I just felt millions of people hear her name every single day on public radio and thousands of people go into these centers with her name on it every single day and probably never ask anything they see her picture at the entryway and that's it and i thought this mm-hmm. is 
this is a way to get the word out about what she did. And again, just to inspire people, hopefully, to realize that, you know, in adversity, you can come up with something positive to do, even if you aren't a billionaire, and even if you aren't a well-educated person with stacks of degrees. And and Joan, Joan made that happen in a big way, in a fantastic way. So I hope that that's what people take away. Mm-hmm. And ultimately... Is the family happy with the book? Have they read it? No one has read Very few people have read the book okay. yet. It's just out to reviewers. They Ultimately, a couple of her granddaughters talked with me. Her, her only daughter talked with me uh, a fair amount. I think she recognized I was going to do it anyway, so she might as well help me get my facts straight. Um, they all had complicated relationships with her, and I'm hoping. I, I'm, they're my, I'm most nervous about their readership. I hope if they do read the book that they see that my intent was was to celebrate this incredible woman. And I think many of the things that they'll read in the book are things that they won't even have known about. So I hope it's something that they see and can be proud of uh, as you know that they're the offspring of this remarkable woman. Yes, indeed. Well, thank you so much for being on the show today to share the story of Ray and Joan, and specifically Joan, who so many of us really knew very, very little about. And I do encourage everyone to go check out that book. At some point, you will be able to purchase it. It's rayandjoan.com. Go to rayandjoan.com to learn more. And I wish you best of luck at the Miami Book Fair coming up here in just a few weeks. May that be hugely successful as well. Thank you. I love that festival. I'm so excited to be participating in it. And I'm so grateful for your time and interest and enthusiasm. Thank you. Absolutely. It was a pleasure having you on. And thanks to my producer, George. And join me right here next week for another edition of Purse Strings, 3 o'clock Eastern. Until then, make it a great one. The opinions expressed are those of the hosts and their guests and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff and management of Cranberry News Marketing and Cranberry.fm. Rebroadcasts or retransmission of this content without proper consent is prohibited. 